If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 3. Otherwise, it'll be there on the screen for you. But I like to still for us to use our Bibles. It's a good idea to keep in practice with using your Bible, your sword. Or if it's a small one, it could be a dagger. And for the pocket edition, I guess you'd call that a pen knife. But uh, Revelation 3, we're going to look at all of three verses today. I'm hoping that we will get through the book of Revelation in all of our lifetimes here. We'll see. I'm going to read those first three verses. Read along with me. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. This is Sardis he's speaking to, by the way. To the angel of the church of Sardis. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Let's pray. Father, as we delve into these three verses, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be here with us, to teach us, to lead us, to guide us. You said you would send the Comforter, the Paraclete, the one who comes alongside to counsel, to comfort, to teach. We ask, Lord, today that you would cause your Holy Spirit to teach us as we study this passage together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. We've already talked about this before, but the angel, angels are messengers. That's what the word means. Some think that this is actually referring to the pastors of these seven churches, to the angel or pastor, or it could be an angelic being as in, being used as an intermediary. But the message here is to the church of Sardis. Sardis represents the Protestant church. We've talked about how these different churches represent different times in the history of the church. There was an immediate application for that church, and then there's a historical application. And there's also, I believe, a contemporary application for the time in which we're now living. But it represents the Protestant church during the period between A.D. 1517 and approximately A.D. 1800, so almost a 300-year span. This era, represented by Sardis, began when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses onto the chapel door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany, when he departed from the Catholic Church and he gave 95 reasons why. That era started the Reformation, and it takes us up to the beginning of the great missionary movement, which began in the 1800s. But interestingly enough, in spite of that, Sardis is known historically as the dead or dying church. There are only two of the seven churches that Jesus condemned most harshly in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. They belong to the only two cities of the seven that are, this is really interesting, the two churches that Jesus condemned the most harshly, Sardis and Laodicea, the lukewarm church, they are the only two cities that no longer exist. All they have is ruins. The other cities all are still in existence and have inhabitants. But Sardis and Laodicea 
are completely uninhabited in modern times. Now, as I've shared with you previously, all of the seven churches were located in what is now modern-day Turkey. Isn't that interesting? Because Turkey is now an Islamic country. But in the first century, the gospel of Christ was spreading all over Asia Minor. Churches were being planted everywhere. And Christianity was thriving. It shows you what can happen if we are not diligent, we've been talking a lot about being overcomers, enduring to the end. But now we're seeing the same thing happening in our own nation, a nation that was founded by Puritans, pilgrims, Protestants, who came here so that they could freely worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our founding political documents were based upon biblical values and principles, our judicial system, and I believe it was James Madison, I could be mistaken, but I believe it was James Madison that said this government only works for a religious people when the people of America are no longer religious. And he meant that in a positive way, in a Christian way. When this nation is no longer a Christian nation, the whole structure will fall apart and we're seeing that happening before our very eyes as the spirit of Antichrist sweeps across our land. So, it happened in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. It can happen here if we're not diligent, if we're not faithful in prayer, diligent in prayer, diligent in proclaiming the message of the gospel as we just lined it out with this definition of evangelicalism. And it's beginning to fall by the wayside as we see one-third of the people no longer believing Jesus is God, two-thirds believing that he's a created being rather than being co-equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, Sardis and Laodicea, not only do they not have any modern counterparts in Turkey, they were also the only two churches that, listen to this now, the only two who had no internal or external conflict. And what was the result? We have a whole movement within the church today, the Word of Faith movement, positive confession, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, slab it and stab it. I love to rhyme. This entire movement, and many of these are some of the most famous preachers in America, sadly, and they tell you that if you have enough faith, nothing bad will ever happen in your life. You'll never get sick. You'll have all the money you could ever want. You'll have the most gorgeous wife, the most handsome husband, the greatest kids, so on and so forth. The only two churches in Asia Minor that had no internal or external conflict, which is what the Word of Faith movement promotes. They would even go so far as to say, you can't call a red light a stoplight because stopping is negative. I'm not kidding you. That's a negative connotation to stop. So it's called a traffic light or a traffic signal. You don't call it a stoplight or a stop sign even though it says stop right on it. Isn't that silly? But that's the mentality that they embrace. That To me, that's 
That's mysticism. It's almost like witchcraft. It's like, oh, you can't say this or that. Superstitious. You know? Knock on wood. Break a leg. Superstition. The only two churches that had no internal or external conflict and they were the worst of the bunch. What does that tell us? Even though we don't like trials, we don't like difficulties, right? We, we like it when things go smooth, but it's the trials and the tribulations that make us strong because that's our spiritual form of exercise. We know what happens when we don't exercise, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get sick. You're not healthy. But exercise, if it's beneficial, is not always comfortable, is it? Uh, there's muscle aches and pains. There's sweating. There's a breathing heavily, right? You know the old expression, right? No pain, no gain. These churches had the easiest route and the easiest road of any of the seven churches, and they were the ones. Laodicea was lukewarm. Sardis was dead or dying. It was the capital of ancient Lydia. It's located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira that we just finished. Sardis was a commercial hub for the towns of that area. Wealth poured into the city. Sardis had a large, powerful, and wealthy Jewish community that had long been a part of a respected part of the community life there. And we know that there were Jews who came to Christ and there were Jews who didn't. And typically the Jews who did not come to Christ would persecute the ones who did. But again, Sardis didn't have a lot of conflict. It was the home of many pagan cults, Artemis, Sybil, also known as Demeter, Korah, also known as Persephone. All of these gods were worshipped there. And then there was also the imperial cult of Rome where they worshipped the emperor. That was also very strong there. And this Sybil or Demeter was identified with the deified mother of an emperor, just like in some circles, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is deified. She should not be. Mary is not God. She's a human being, just like you and I. But they worship the deified mother of the emperor. So there was a lot of weirdness going on there. But the church, the local Christian church, really didn't get a hard time from these people. So the angel of the church in Sardis write these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So this title for Jesus symbolizes the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness. We all know, right, that the number seven represents perfection, fulfillment, completion. So when it talks about he who has the seven spirits of God, that means Jesus is, is the whole package. He's got the fullness of the Holy Spirit as the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity. And a dead church definitely needs the fullness of the sevenfold Spirit of God. The seven spirits and the seven stars. Again, the stars, the angels or pastors of the seven churches, referencing back to chapter 1, verse 20. And he says, as he said to these various churches, 
I know your works or your deeds. The only problem in this case, it's not good. That you have a name or a reputation that you are alive. I would propose to you that, again, in the contemporary context, there are many churches today that have a reputation that they are alive based upon a number of things that aren't necessarily true indicators of spiritual life. So Sardis apparently was known among their, other, their sister churches for being spiritually alive. Have you ever heard phrases like, man, that church is really happening. They got it going on. They're seeker-friendly, emergent, mega-church, purpose-driven. Wow, man, they're cooking with gas. That's kind of an old-school expression. Yet Jesus, who truly knows our spiritual condition, had this pronouncement, you are dead. You have a reputation that you're alive, but Jesus says, I'm telling you, you're dead. Now Laodicea, the lukewarm church, deceived herself as to her true condition. In uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, Jesus says, because you say, I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But again, there's no record that Laodicea had that reputation among the other churches like Sardis did, that of being alive, and, but in reality, Jesus says you're dead. G. Campbell Morgan, great Bible teacher, called it a reputation without reality. And in the tradition of the Pharisees, they could put on a good front, but they were dead inside. Matthew 23, 27, 28, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the spiritual leaders so-called of Israel. Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men. But inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Just as Jesus delivered people from the bondage of pharisaical legalism and brought them into salvation by grace through faith, so Martin Luther delivered the people from the bondage of salvation by works. What really turned Martin Luther from Catholicism to being the leader of the Reformation is he did an in-depth study of the Book of Romans and Martin Luther, this Catholic priest, discovered the doctrine of salvation by grace. Pastor Chuck Smith many years ago published a commentary on the Book of Romans and he entitled it the gospel according to grace. Martin Luther, as he studied the book of Romans, he had a divine revelation about salvation by grace through faith. So that was the significant event that triggered the great Reformation and the uh, Protestant movement was when Martin Luther discovered salvation by grace through faith delivering initially hundreds, thousands, and then even millions of people from bondage of salvation by works. There is a downside to the doctrine of salvation by grace, and it's not 
God's problem, it's our problem. It can lead to laziness, apathy, a false sense of comfort. We've talked about this doctrine of once saved, always saved. It can cause believers to become lazy, apathetic. You have a false sense of comfort and security that can rob us of the motivation to diligently serve Christ. And that's why so many groups have embraced a salvation by works theology because it tends to keep people motivated. Let me give you some examples. The Mormon Church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all of these cult groups, they are taught that they must do these works in the hopes that they might be saved. You still don't know for sure. With the Jehovah's Witnesses, only 144,000 get to go to heaven. Did you know that? That's such a small number. What are your chances of being one of those? But it sure gets them to work their little heinies off. Is it okay if I say heiny? That's not too vulgar, is it? It gets them to work their little heinies off. You don't see too many evangelicals going door to door. Hey, man, do you know Jesus? We're too lazy to do that. Let's be honest. The Jehovah's Witnesses, right out of high school, the Mormon boys have to commit. It's mandatory. Two years as a missionary. Did you know that? The guys you see riding around on their bicycles with the suits and ties, or at least a white shirt and tie, and they call them elders. Somebody was talking to me about that the other day. I think it was Kent, how the elders came to visit him. And they're these young kids just barely out of high school. But they do it because they have to. Not because they really have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They both read the Jehovah's Witnesses have a fake translation of the New Testament that's totally bogus. And the Marvins have their own special book, not written by God, by the way. So we have to guard our hearts and be careful on that one. And that perhaps may be part of what happened with this church of Sardis because they understood that salvation was by grace through faith. They just began to die out. They didn't even have good works, let alone the love that Ephesus had lost. They were a dead, dying church. Verse 2, so Jesus' message to them continues, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God or complete. God knows we will never be perfect in this life, but it means mature, complete, there's not the evidence, the spiritual fruit that should be there in the church. So he says, be watchful, which can also be translated, wake up. You're falling asleep. They were dead, but it wasn't too late. Jesus seeks to awaken them. But because of their city's history, which I will recount to you in just a moment, these believers in Sardis should have understood very well Jesus' warning to them about being dead, dying, falling asleep. You see, Sardis was located on the top of a mountain. It only had one entrance from the south side, which was the only way that you could get into the city. Because of this, all that Sardis had to do to put a guard or guards 
at that one place to watch the city. That's all they had to do. But two times in their history, they had, prior to this time of the first century, when Jesus is sending this message to them, two times in their history they'd been involved, or invaded rather, by their enemies because they felt secure. Hello? Believing that the hill was impregnable, the guard went to sleep on the job. In 549 B.C., the Median soldiers of Cyrus scaled the natural wall, and then again in 218, they did the same thing. Antiochus the Great captured Sardis because a Cretan, someone from the Isle of Crete, slipped over the walls while the sentries were being careless. So what the Lord says to this church here at Sardis is this, you wake up and watch out. This was embarrassing because of the two occasions in their history when they'd been caught napping. He says to the church, don't you go to sleep. So he tells them, be watchful or wake up and strengthen the things which remain. So they had lost apparently most of their vibrancy, their vigor, enthusiasm for Christ. They were just going through the motions, if you will. But Jesus encourages them to strengthen the things that remain. You know, when we're confronted with our failures, our shortcomings, our sins, if you will, we can choose to give up, and sadly, a lot of people do. I wouldn't be surprised if almost everyone in this room knows someone who at one time professed to be a follower of Christ, but they went through difficulties in their life. They began to become lax in their worship, church attendance. We, we don't go to church to be saved. We go to church to maintain our salvation, just like you take your car to the garage for an oil change or a tune-up or a new set of tires. We go to church so that we can be trained and equipped, taught in the Word of God, worship together, fellowship together. These are things that strengthen us and help us to remain strong in our faith. People begin to be lax in those things. It shows up in their spiritual lives. So we have two choices when we are confronted with our failures, our shortcomings, our sins. And God surely will do that. Again, that perhaps is why more people don't regularly expose themselves to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God and to Christian fellowship because they're afraid to face their own reality. So we have two choices. We can choose to give up. Sadly, many have departed from the faith. Or we can strengthen what remains. It's called repenting, turning and going the other way, turning from a self-serving life to a self-sacrificial life, laying down our lives to follow Christ and to serve one another. Remember what Jesus told the last church, Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 25, hold fast what you have till I come. And so similarly, he tells Sardis, strengthen what remains. You're not totally dead yet. But the believers at Sardis could have said, well, if we're that far gone, let's just hang it up. Or they could choose the attitude of praise God. Jesus is reaching out to us. He still loves us. We can have a fresh start in Christ. And I like to say that our God is a God of new beginnings, fresh starts, and second chances. 
and beyond second chances over and over again. Remember what Jesus taught Peter? How many times should I forgive the person who sinned against me? Seven times, Lord? That's a big number. It's a number of perfection. Lord, if I forgive him seven times, would I be perfect? No, Peter. <laughs> Jesus said 70 times seven, which really means innumerable times. As many times. And that was Jesus. That message was for you and I that no matter how many times we fail, no matter how many times we fall short and miss the mark, if we will simply go to God and ask for his forgiveness, he will forgive us. He will pick us back up and dust us off and keep us going on the right path. But the choice is ours. Do we give up or do we strengthen what remains? And that's what he's telling the people of Sardis. Don't give up. You guys, your woobie is looking bad, bud. That's a line from Mr. Mom. The woobie was a blanket. They're trying to get the kid. He's too old for a woobie. So Michael Keaton says, your woobie's looking bad, bud. Time to go. Jesus is telling the people of Sardis, your woobie's looking bad. But don't give up. Strengthen what remains. Don't you think that was funny? Come on, give me a break. Your, I like that. Your woobie's looking bad. Okay. Watch the movie. Huh? It's PG. The things that are ready to die. So they are really, they are right on the verge of losing it all, spiritually speaking. Strengthen that which remains and is about to die. The things that are ready to die. Here's the deal, folks. A lot of people, when they find themselves in this place in their lives, they keep putting it off. They think, yeah, I do need, I need to get back to church. I need to get right with God. I need to forgive some people. I need to uh, ask them to forgive me. Maybe tomorrow, right? Maybe next week when I get time, when I'm not too busy. And they keep putting it off. The longer we resist God, we all know that... It is possible and even fairly easy to resist the Holy Spirit, right? None of us have ever done that, have we? You ever hear that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit and you just kind of ignore it because you don't necessarily want to do what He's telling you to do? We do that. Let's be honest. We shouldn't. And when we do do that, we need to repent. We need to confess that before God and repent. Father, forgive me for ignoring you, for not listening to you, for not following your wisdom, your guidance, your direction for my life. I'm pretty sure there have been a lot of people who have heard this one. Don't marry that person. But you did it anyway. Maybe not, hopefully nobody here today, but I know it happens. You don't want to hear it because you're attracted to them. You're in lust. I mean love. Right? They're not even a believer. Don't do that. Don't go, oh, I'll convert them. The next thing you know, you're not walking with the Lord anymore. They're not converted. You've been deconverted. See, when it comes to that kind of stuff, we would kind of just prefer God to stay out of it. Lord, if I need you, I'll call you, right? That's not how it's supposed to work. We're supposed to listen to him. Probably hit a few nerves there. I'm sorry. By the way, 
when we confess our sins before God and repent, he can take that which the enemy intended for evil and he can work it for good in your life. There is no sin or mistake that we've committed that God cannot work, help us work through. If we'll start listening to him, the things that are ready to die, the longer we resist God, the harder it becomes to respond. Do you realize that? The Bible talks about it as the hardening of the heart. The heart and the mind are connected according to the word of God. As a man thinks in his heart, did you know your heart can think? The mind, the will, the emotions, it's all interconnected. And the heart can become hardened. I've shared this statistic before, but they've actually done an analysis. It's quite fascinating that the longer a person waits to make a decision regarding Jesus Christ, the harder it becomes until statistically, I know that God is bigger and stronger than statistics, okay? But statistically, ready for it? The time a person reaches the age of 70, if they've never made a commitment to Christ, if they've never received Christ, mathematically, there's a 0% chance that that will happen. Now, we know it does happen because God is a God of miracles and he can do all things. But on the average, a 70-year-old person who's never received Christ probably never will. Isn't that interesting? Because the longer we resist him, the more hardened our hearts become and our consciences become seared as with a hot iron. So the people of Sardis, their fire for God had been reduced to a smoldering ember, just the last little vestiges of a what once was a raging fire for Christ. And if they didn't allow the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit to blow on them in their church, that ember would soon be stone cold. The things that are ready to die. He says, For I have not found your works, your deeds, perfect or complete before God. The previous churches had the deeds but they'd lost their first love and then their sound doctrine. Sardis was lacking in all of the above. James 2.26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so the fruit of the spirit, the evidence that an individual or a group of believers are truly born again and filled with the spirit of God there will be good works, good deeds. But they must be catalyzed, energized by agape love, God's unconditional love. So he says in verse 3, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. So we know that these believers in Sardis had been taught and trained in the word of God. Remember how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Hold fast means to obey it. When we talk about holding on to the truth, holding on to the word of God, that means we do it. We obey it. They had received the truth of God's word and heard it and read it, had it preached to them, but it does no good unless you obey it. Way back in Revelation 1.3, we read, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things. Remember that? The threefold. 
expectation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which results in blessing. He promises, blessed is he who does three things. Reads the word of God, hears it for him who has ears to hear, spiritual ears. You read it, you hear it. The Holy Spirit is quickening it to your heart and your mind. And then you keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So hold fast, repent, turn from their disobedience and their spiritual deadness and back to a vibrant, spirit-filled walk with God. Jesus says, if you will not watch or wake up, I will come to you as a thief. And see, there, again, we hold fast to this pre-tribulational rapture of the church, believing that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air before the tribulation. And it's been pointed out by more than one pre-tribulational teacher that if we were to remain we would then be able to calculate the exact time of the Lord's return based upon the events prescribed in the Bible that will take place during the tribulation. Jesus says he's coming as a thief. We don't know the exact moment. He wants us to be watching, to be ready. Those who don't share our belief in the pre-tribulational rapture tell us that's the easy way out, the lazy way out. It's not. If you believe that Jesus could call you at any moment... That should motivate you to be living uprightly before the Lord, don't you think? Are you doing something at that moment that you wouldn't want God to see? He sees it anyway, right? But in our pea brains, we kind of think if we can't see him here in the flesh in person, that he doesn't know what we're up to. But he does. In his days here on earth, Christ mentioned this at least twice, Matthew 24, 42 through 43, Luke 12, 39, and 40. The apostles mentioned it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 4, and 6. 2 Peter 3, 10, if you can write this fast. Revelation 16, 15, again, mentions Christ's coming as a thief. Let me read Luke 12, 39 to you. Know this, Jesus said, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. All of the apostles, all of the early believers believed in the imminent return of Christ, meaning he could come at any moment. There are those who say, no, 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 he can't come yet. This has to happen, that has to happen, this has to happen. Really, we're going to tell Jesus he can't come? I don't think so. The imminent return of Christ, and by the way, the return of Christ has more than one phase, right? We've talked about this. Phase one is the rapture of the church, where he comes for his saints. He's up there, midair, trumpet call, catches us up to meet him in the air. He comes for his saints. At the end of the tribulation, seven-year tribulation, he comes back with his saints. So it's a two-part. The Old Testament writers, the prophets, they, God gave them prophecies that had the first coming and the second coming all mixed together, and they didn't know the difference. That's one of the reasons they didn't understand Jesus at his first coming. He didn't seem like the Messiah they were expecting, this conquering king, this mighty warrior, because the second coming scriptures and the first coming scriptures were all blended together in the Old Testament. We need to understand the same thing is true in the New Testament regarding the second coming. The second coming involves a number of events, the rapture of the church, and we have the interlude of the tribulation, 
then the second coming where Christ literally comes to the earth, sets foot on the Mount of Olives and begins to rule and reign for a thousand years and we're there with him. You can never spend too much time studying prophecy, the end times and so forth, although some prefer to avoid it altogether. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning verse 2, For you yourselves know perfectly, Thessalonians, because I've taught you, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. If that were not the case, why wouldn't the New Testament writers have said, the day of the Lord will come after the Antichrist rises to power. So when you see a one-world government, a one-world religion, and a one-world economy, then you know you've got about seven years to go. It doesn't say that. It says he's going to come as a thief in the night. Only those who are watching and waiting and ready will not be caught off guard. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, with a big D, should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. What's he telling Sardis? Wake up! You're dozing off. And if you fall asleep, it kind of be fatal. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. You will not know what hour I will come upon you. The scriptures clearly teach that those who are not actively watching and waiting for the return of Christ will be caught off guard. Finally, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord... So who is he speaking to here? Believers. You do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had not known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's just part of the message to Sardis. Next week, we'll delve into the message to this particular group, the faithful remnant. God always has a faithful remnant. Remember when Elijah was all bummed out? Just went, he fled because Jezebel sent him a nasty letter. Hillabel. <laughs> and he thought, he was just having a pity party. Nobody in Israel but me believes in you anymore, God. I'm all alone. No, 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 no. He found out there was a faithful remnant. Whenever we start to feel that way, and it's easy to feel that way in this time that we're living in, isn't it? You look around, you see what's happening, you talk to people. It's like Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I was reading some commentary from Pastor Chuck yesterday. And he said 30 or 40 years ago that the church was already in an apostate condition. That was 30, 40 years ago. It's even more so true today. The great falling away is upon us. And, you know, I love and appreciate those who say, oh, no, 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 we're on the verge of a great worldwide revival. We're going to see more people coming to Jesus than ever before. I'm sorry, my Bible doesn't teach that. And my world does not reflect that. But I'm okay with that because that's what God says has to happen. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham bargained with God, remember? God graciously comes to Abraham because Abraham's 
nephew Lot and his family lived in Sodom, and God comes to tell them in the form of a man or an angel, we're going we're gonna to go over now and destroy Sodom. And Lot's there. And Abraham says, now wait a minute. Well, what if you find 50 righteous there? Are you going to destroy it? Oh no, if I find 50 righteous, we'll let it stand. So Abraham, father of the Hebrews, what if there's only 40? <laughs> I'm in that in the nicest possible way. What if there's only 40? Well, no, if there's 40, we won't, we won't destroy it. What if there's only 30? Wait, hey. <laughs> and so they get all the way down to 10, right? And God is so gracious, so merciful. Oh, well, if there's 10 righteous, the only problem was there was Lot, his wife, the two daughters, and the two fiancés. That's only six. What if there's 10? Oh, no, I won't destroy it for 10. But there weren't 10, and God did destroy it. And I believe we're getting to that point in our world today. At some point, God's going to say, okay, it's time to remove the righteous and judge this world. We're getting closer every day. Would you not agree? It has to happen. There's an old expression, it's always darkest before the dawn. The morning star is about to arise and bring new life and new light to this world. But it's always darkest before the dawn. And the overcomers will be the ones who partake in the wonders and the glories of God's eternal kingdom. Let's stand. I'd like to ask anyone who needs prayer today, if you'd please raise your hand. If it's for salvation, you'd like to receive Christ today as your Lord and Savior, raise your hand. If you need help in some other way from the Lord, He is our help in the time of need, is He not? God knows your hearts. He knows exactly why you're raising your hands right now. So let me pray for you. Father, I just lift each one of these up to you. You know each heart. Father, if there's anybody today that is wanting to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray that you would help them right now to humble themselves before you, confess their sins, repent, express their desire to turn from a life of sin and to live a life pleasing to you, Lord. And we ask that you'd fill them with your Holy Spirit. Give them the strength to live for you, Lord. Lord, whatever else is going on, whether it be illness, financial concerns, job, housing, relationships, Lord, whatever the problem might be, we know that you're the answer. So I pray for each one of these folks. Give them wisdom. Give them guidance. Show them if there's something that they need to be doing to help remedy and rectify their situation. But Lord, sometimes we find ourselves in situations that are totally beyond our control and we turn to you and ask for your help. Pray for healing for those struggling with any type of an illness or disease. Encouragement for those who are discouraged or downhearted. Provision for those who are struggling economically. Healing of relationships that have been broken. We lift all this up to you now, Lord. And we thank you for your word. It's dynamic, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you, God, for doing spiritual surgery on us every time we delve into your word. We ask you now to receive our final song, our final act of worship here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.